welcome back to Speak Environment Podcast and welcome to the first official episode of the podcast. Today, I am very excited because I had a chance to talk with Dr. Shahir Mazri, who is an air pollution scientist and the author of the book, Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change. We talked for about an hour. He's going to give you his whole bio, but in essence, we talked about his long road of academia, his independent outreach and activism for climate education around the United States, bringing a human dimension to climate change via the book that he has written and the book that he is currently writing, science communication, the role of scientists in that debate, and platforms to do so on. So stick around if you want to hear anything about these topics and more. It was such an amazing experience talking to somebody that has a doctor prefix from an undergraduate perspective, and this collaboration was totally happenstance. We met each other through Instagram. He actually reached out to me and said that he liked the podcast idea and wanted to be on for an interview. So here we go. I was very nervous, and you can definitely tell in some aspects of the way that I was talking. So excuse the ums, likes, and yes, but without further ado, I hope you enjoy the podcast and I hope you learn something from Dr. Shahir Mazri. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Speak Environment podcast. I'm very excited because today I am here with Dr. Shahir Mazri. Thank you so much for being here with me. Absolutely. You no, know, it's it's always great to, uh, to sort of link up with people doing great things around the country, around the world. And I think it's great that you're getting this podcast going and helping to spread awareness about important issues. I just wanted to start off with basically like, you know, the who's the what's and what's going on. So if you'd like to just share a little bit about yourself, like your name and like what you're doing, where you're holding out in quarantine and your profession and things like that. Sure, sure. My name is Shahir Masri and I'm, uh, I guess to give you a little bit of background, I'm from Southern California and I have, uh, I sort, sort of my academic background is uh, being undergraduate at UCLA where I got my environmental science uh, undergraduate degree. And then after being on the West Coast for so long, actually for my master's degree, I ended up at Harvard University for my uh, environmental health master's. And then I actually stayed on the East Coast for total of six years as I entered the doctoral program there as well at Harvard and ultimately finished um, my doctor in environmental exposure assessment. So a pretty specific area within environmental health, basically focused mostly on uh, identifying and quantifying environmental exposures, whether it's air pollution or others. It so happens that my particular focus was air pollution, and that's what I ended up Sort of doing in my postdoctoral work at the University of California, Irvine, which is where I currently work. And I also teach courses at uh, Chapman University up the street and at National University. So in terms of where I'm hunkering down at the moment, I actually live in Orange, uh, within Orange County, California. And the Chapman University actually is just up the street. I can walk, I can walk there, but I'm no longer teaching in person, as I'm sure you're familiar we're doing zoom calls and uh the students just had their final exam this week so looks like summer's just around the corner yeah that's awesome so um another thing that was really shocking to me is that we're actually not that far i'm currently in long beach so we're like very close to each other so it would be awesome to do this in person but you know got a pandemic happening right now (laughs) maybe in the future that'd be (laughs) awesome so it's cool to hear about your road to being where you are now, you've got a lot of academia under your belt. Um, and from an undergrad perspective, like that seems like forever. <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, just 
as an undergrad speaking with somebody with a doctor prefix, like I said, um, I'm like beyond interested in, you know, knowing more about you and like your road to your career. So <laughs> I guess like we can start with like where you were as an undergrad. What did you go in wanting to do versus what did you come out of undergrad doing? Yeah, so I guess my interest and passion for environmental science started really, really early in my life. Uh, my mother is an environmental science high school teacher and she teaches biology as well. So that sort of science underpinning was there, I suppose, from a long, um, a long time ago. And I also grew up doing you know outdoor activities camping and really becoming acquainted with the outdoors and that's when i really i think developed my uh, strong appreciation for the environment you know i just loved everything about uh, the beautiful nature that existed around the world even places i had never visited you know i was intrigued by the amazon rainforest from a very early age i never ended up visiting there until last spring was the first time i actually went to the amazon and uh, but yeah throughout my early age, I had a appreciation for the environment. And I recall as a, as a student in elementary school, seeing videos of sort of the smoggy hills of Los Angeles and the impacts of the local forests, uh, that kind of triggered my mind into thinking, you know, how can, uh, you know, I'd be interested in, to try to help the environment. You know, you don't initially, I think, understand that the environment's under threat in so many ways from deforestation to air pollution to water contamination. And by the time I was in high school, hearing that there is this degree that existed called environmental science, uh, I was pretty much sold by, it might have even been seventh grade, actually, maybe junior high school. I was, I was pretty much sold on this degree from uh, age, uh, I don't know, age 12 or <laughs> 13. So uh, I was uh, excited to pursue environmental science as an undergraduate. And uh, I, I was actually started out at Orange Coast College, which is a junior college in uh, Orange County, which you may or may not be familiar with. And I ended up transferring from there to the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, uh, with all my credits that I, all the credits I could carry with me. And uh, I was at the Institute for the Environment at UCLA, now called IOES, because they added the word sustainability at the end. Um, I absolutely loved my my undergraduate uh, experience in terms of education. I was really, really busy. Um, as you, you could probably relate, undergraduate's a busy time, uh, but trying to get into a good four-year school out of my, my transfer college required a lot of science credits and a lot of serious focus. So I was pretty much swamped throughout most of my undergraduate uh, work. And, uh, and, was also just so intrigued. I mean, reading about pollution and, and the environment, these were all things I think I would have been doing anyways, but I could actually, you know, direct it towards a degree. And of course, any degree you get, you're, you're going to have to dive into the weeds more than you naturally would. Uh, so studying all the science textbooks was uh, time consuming, but extremely informative to, you know, the the type of work I'd be doing later in life. Uh, so can't speak highly enough about the UCLA uh, Institute for the Environment and Sustainability, the faculty there, the, the types of classes I was taking, extremely rigorous competitive uh, school and, and program, being surrounded by a lot of students who were, most of my classmates actually were 
medical students. So we kind of paralleled the med school track for a little while. So you're in all the chem physics and, and uh, those types of classes. So um, definitely pushed me. But uh, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, I definitely can relate to the whole undergrad being a swamp's time. I'm living that right now. And you just mentioned physics. It's funny because I just registered for my physics class last night. Um, not exactly looking forward to it, but it's part of the degree plan. So we're going to do it. <laughs> and your degree is in? My degree is in environmental science. I have an environmental science um, major with a specialization in applied ecology. And I'm going to pick up a specialization in conservation and sustainability. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So that's awesome. So you kind of went in with a straight line focus on environmental science. Um, I've been told by a lot of people in my life that it's kind of fortunate that you had an idea of what you wanted to do because some people don't. Um, so yeah. And your mom being an environmental science um, teacher, you said yeah, in high school. Yeah. Did you have a, a focus? Did you know from an early point that you wanted to do environmental science? I have. This has kind of always been my little niche of interest. I mean, I bounced around for a little bit as a kid, but I've ended up here and I've stuck with it. Um, the most I've done, like bouncing around far as is going between environmental science and natural resources um, for a major, but I'm definitely more at home in my College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University. So. <laughs> yeah. So so that's where you're currently attending school. You have flown home then for to Long Beach. That's the case. Okay. Yeah. So I'm usually an out of state student, but with coronavirus, here I am in Long Beach. <laughs> so you came out of undergrad with a degree in what exactly? Environmental science. That was actually that degree. And at UCLA they have you pick a minor and environmental health was my minor. So I, I actually was interested I also think this stemmed from an early age. I've always been fascinated by the atmosphere. I was reading books on meteorology when I was in high school and understanding the clouds and the winds and, and all that stuff. And uh, air pollution, as I mentioned, learning about that when I was younger, uh, I thought was really interesting. So sort of this intersection of air pollution with my interest in the atmosphere. And then my favorite science topic happened to be chemistry. So uh, they kind of intersection of all these things was environmental health where you could study air pollution and air quality so i naturally gravitated toward the environmental health minor in college and uh, that's where i could really study chemistry of the environment and pollution of the environment and ultimately that was part of my yeah part of my degree training and they actually had you register for graduate courses to get those extra credits for environmental health. And I thought that was very interesting taking my first water pollution classes, my first atmospheric pollution classes. I still keep in contact with one of my professors actually who taught me atmospheric chemistry. It was, it was, um, yeah, just a really, uh, illustrative class. And I, I, uh, still use that class in my daily, in my daily life. There's that understanding that I developed at that early age. Um, but if you want to pursue environmental health as a, as a, master or doctoral student, typically you find that under the schools of public health when you go to different schools. So then uh, in determining and deciding what I wanted to do after undergraduate, it was mostly looking at public health schools because the environmental health was what I wanted to pursue. So that's where I 
ultimately found myself uh, at the Harvard School of Public Health, which is where I resided for the next six years. Yeah. I actually really appreciate the whole um, you tracing intersections between your interests. That's kind of how I ended up with my specialization in applied ecology. When I was first coming in, my advisor's like, all right, well, environmental science is a huge major. So what do you want to do with it? And I actually was like, I don't know what I want to do with it. I just know I love the environment. I want to do something. And she's like, well, all right, let's break it down to basics, land or water. Um, You know, so I'm like, okay, well, I think I would like to study terrestrial biomes more than I would like to be on the water, which is kind of ironic because I'm near the beach, but (laughs) um, that's just kind of where it is. So yeah, I ended up in applied ecology and I'm trying to go towards more like forest ecology um, in the future. So that's kind of where I'm headed. But the whole um, kind of tracing your interests and then finding the intersection is actually a really good strategy for people that don't know what they want to do exactly with their degree. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, a series of of small decisions over the course of years can really translate to huge differences in where you wind up. Yeah, it's that's definitely true. I feel like I'm living that right now. So it's kind of interesting to have a conversation between someone that's in it and somebody that's like, you know, behind it and you can see it in a rearview mirror. So it's a really interesting perspective. Um, so you got your degree in environmental science, you were done with your undergrad and were you straight out of the gate like, yes, I want to go on with academia or were you like, I, this was four years of rigorous work. Like, what do I do now? What was that like? Yeah, it's a good question. And I actually spent five years in undergraduate because of the loss of efficiency when you transfer from one school to another, you kind of lose a little bit of efficiency with some of your credits. So I actually, um, yeah, I was five years undergraduate and 2009, when I graduated, I was just as pumped as ever, actually. So I was wanting to go straight into grad school. And in fact, I wanted to go into a doctoral program. It was through the advice of my atmospheric chemistry pollution teacher, as I was just talking about, I still keep in touch with. Uh, It was through his advice that I applied instead to master's programs, because as ambitious as I was, I wanted to get a doctorate, so on and so forth. I didn't have enough of a detailed understanding as to what exactly I wanted to study for the next <clears throat> five, six years. So I, impl- I did t- take that advice. I applied for just master's programs. And uh, an interesting tidbit actually is I was thinking more, I was really limited, limiting myself in terms of my, my I guess, um, potential in terms of where I would apply. So I was only applying to, I think, three schools. And they were schools that I had visited and they were in pretty areas. They were close to home, one being UCLA, the other being UC Irvine, even closer. And the other one being Boulder, Colorado, because I had been there and I loved it out there. So I was really just applying to these three schools. And through the counsel of, of my professor, I it, I ended up applying more broadly to 11 different schools. He asked me, why aren't you applying to Harvard and Yale and, and Berkeley and all these other great schools, Columbia? And I just hadn't, hadn't thought, I didn't think of myself as somebody who could get into Harvard and Yale and all these schools. And uh, that was just my own mental limitation of where I could wind up. Having said that, I took his advice and ended up applying to all the schools. And before I knew it, I had acceptance letters from Yale and Harvard and, and uh, all these great schools. And I was uh, just ecstatic and 
I really liked the program that Harvard was offering, a two-year master's in science program. Uh, and I, I miss Boston and my experience in graduate school to this day. It was just uh, so positive, very different from undergraduate. I think that if you, once you get into graduate school, you're already, you've already sort of proved your interest in a topic and you're surrounded by a lot of people who are interested in the field. Um, oftentimes the environment's not as rigorous as undergraduate. I found undergraduate in many ways to be more competitive and rigorous and tiring. Of course, graduate school has those moments as well. Uh, but it's it's a whole different ballgame and you're more of an adult and you can explore, um, you know, ex exploring Boston and the surrounding community <clears throat> and all the city had to offer was a big piece of all of the, you know, the great memories that I formulated in grad school. Yeah, that's awesome. It's currently like um, everybody in my life is like, are you going to go to grad school right after undergrad? And I'm currently in this position where I'm like, I know I should, but I'm also like already beat down by sophomore years. So like, give me a minute. Sure. Yeah. I think that if you're feeling that way, it doesn't hurt to take a, a year off and defer. Um, I just so happen to be wanting to continue forward, but I think if I was tired, maybe it wouldn't have been the best decision. Yeah. But it's great to hear that you had drive like right after undergrad. You're like, I want to continue on. That's awesome. And I don't hear that a lot from people I'm around. So. Yeah. Having said that, I did end up deferring for a year. It was between my master's and my doctoral degree. So I, I actually had the best situation possible, which is I applied to, I applied back to Harvard. I wasn't, I was not at that point hell bent on jumping right back into a doctoral program. So I was very comfortable applying to one school, my school. And if I didn't get in, taking a year off and then applying broadly. So I, I applied to my one school. Um, I, I got back into the doctoral program and I was uh, excited about that. But I had the option actually on my application to accept or to accept for the following year. And somewhat unsure as to what I wanted to do, um, but my decision was helped by the fact that there were some economic difficulties in the United States around that time, which was cutting funding. And it was just so happened that if I jumped right back in, I wasn't going to be fully funded. And I thought that that's enough to tilt me in the direction of deferring for the year. And uh, that's what I did. And it was the best. It was a great opportunity. It was a great sort of year of deferral because it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a question mark during the year off. It was, you know, I knew exactly what I was going to be doing when I went back to school. And I could therefore just really enjoy my year and do the things that I wanted to do to, to prepare myself to jump back into an extensive doctoral program. Yeah, I have actually never heard of um, accepting with a deferral of a year, but that seems like a really good option for some people in your situation where you said you don't exactly know where exactly you wanted to be. And also if there was financial situations happening in the country, do not blame you for <laughs> saying, you know, yeah, I'll take the year. And it worked to my advantage because uh, the funding situation was better when I got started the following year and I was funded. Mm -hmm. And that's what doctoral programs mostly work is you get fully funded uh, typically when you are in doctoral program, because at that point, you're really foregoing what could be, a, you know, a, 
a fine livelihood making money if you're an undergraduate or maybe you have your master's degree. So the opportunity cost is much higher as a student in graduate school. So most of the time you'll find, uh, you should find funding from the institution that you're applying to. Good to know. Good to know. Um, so with all this like academic experience under your belt, I'm also wondering like what has your fieldwork experience been like with air pollution science? Um, like most memorable, most notable, anything like that? So interestingly, one of my most memorable experiences actually goes back to my undergraduate when I was part of a field uh, a field campaign for air pollution measurements around Los Angeles. I was driving this car that was outfitted with all these different probes and monitoring devices. We were measuring PM 2.5, uh, NOx, carbon monoxide, um, carbon dioxide, all kinds of stuff. And the whole goal was to characterize all these contaminants in the air during traffic hours. So I was driving this, it was an electric vehicle so that it wouldn't produce any of its own emissions. And we were driving around uh, from, I think I was driving around from about five to eight in the morning or or nine, so long periods of time, and then take a break, take a nap in my car, and then jump back in the car from three till 6 p.m. or something, just driving all around this designated route uh, that was designated for us. Uh, That was really memorable. And I also, I think that since we were talking so much about academics and different programs and the whole whole timeline, I think it's useful to mention that those kinds of experiences, if you can get them in undergraduate, uh, your undergraduate degree, are very helpful in helping you get into a graduate school. If you've got research experience, if you've got um, you know, on the ground experience, not only does it add to your skill set, but it also shows that you're really driven and passionate. So if I could provide any tip for those thinking about graduate school, finding some kind of, doesn't have to be in the field research, but some kind of little internship uh, during your undergraduate years will be, I think, invaluable to your application as you move forward. Uh, after that field experience that I had, uh, getting back to your question of what are my most interesting field experiences, uh, you'd probably be interested to find that most of my field is the computer. So I'm actually not on the in the field very often at all. I mostly am being handed these data sets that so there's you know different roles in science. Some people are out there collecting the data, and then some people are taking that data, using it, and analyzing it, and studying it, and, and uh, writing about it. So I'm on the end of data analysis and statistical analysis and writing. So I'm actually not in the field doing many uh, measurements. Uh, I've done a, a bit of that and I've done some lab experience. I, I worked for years at the environmental chemistry laboratory at Harvard where I was um, you know, measuring smoke stain, uh, doing smoke stain measurements to understand particulate uh, pollution and also weighing filters to understand PM 2.5. But uh, now in my doctoral training, doctor, sorry, postdoctoral work, uh, mostly just doing statistical analysis. And I, I won't lie, it's nice to get out in the field every now and then or to get off your computer. So, you know, those people who can find that, I think that's great. But most of what I do is, is the, the field is the walls around me. It's through my grassroots outreach that I actually find myself on the field. And that gets into sort of this project on the road for climate action where we traveled across the country for, you know, uh, 
the greater part of a year in over 40 different states. So that's that's the exciting field work that I get to do, but that doesn't actually come through my paid employment. Yeah, well, that was a question that I had coming up for you, actually. So nice segue into that. Um, as I was doing a little bit of research about you and what you've done, um, I did see on your website that you had your um, On the Road for Climate Action project that started in 2018, I believe. Yes, August 1st, 2018. Yeah, and um, you co-founded that with your fiancé? Yes, then-girlfriend, now-fiancé, Athena. Yeah. Um, I I had questions about that, just like, what was the aspiration that started that? And I don't know, just things like that. Yeah, sure, good question. I was at UCI, uh, UC Irvine, for I think it was, I guess, a couple of years. But after my first year, I was actually realizing that, you know, just kind of sitting on my computer, publishing papers, doing data analysis was not all that I was meant to do. I feel like I got into this whole environmental um, area because I wanted to protect the environment, not because I just wanted to study the environment and publish science. And as much as important as that is, and as interested as I am in the scientific aspect, the the aspect of evoking change and protecting the environment and also informing, you know, teaching, informing the public outreach, that that was missing from what I was doing. And I I viewed it as extremely important. So clearly it wasn't going to take place through the work that I was doing. So I just needed to think outside of the box about how I could get involved. So I started to volunteer for, you know, just grassroots climate organizations. Uh, The Citizens Climate Lobby actually was a group that I started to participate in and, and volunteer for. They're working on trying to get a bill passed through Congress that puts a price on carbon dioxide emissions and protects the environment. And they work with policymakers and uh, they go to Capitol Hill twice a year to lobby with these these politicians. And I thought, wow, that's really meaningful work that I need to somehow bring into my life. So volunteering with them was great. I was. Uh, it's funny you should ask this because I'm writing this up right now in a in my second book, I'm, I'm actually writing a book to chronicle the whole road for climate action around the country, how it got started, and, and everything you know that we observed during the process. So this was this uh, this trip to Washington D.C. took place. I was just writing about it. Uh, I was with Citizens Climate Lobby. They actually sponsored me to fly to D.C. to take place in this climate solutions conference. Thirteen hundred other people. I was so inspired by, and by the way, at this time, I was so overwhelmed with work that I could hardly squeeze any of this outreach into my schedule, and it was becoming increasingly difficult, but I was uh, greeted with this opportunity to fly to D.C., um, you know, a small little grant, if you will, and that was, uh, you know, you can't really say no to some such a nice little opportunity, and uh, being surrounded by 1,300 people who were extremely passionate about climate change solutions and and working on this problem. It was just so inspiring to me that I went to the conference with the intention of telling some of my group members that, hey, you know, after this conference, I'm going to have to take a back seat with some of this climate outreach. It's it's just too difficult right now to fit into my schedule. And I came back from the conference with a 180 degree different perspective on that. I actually realized that what I needed to do was downscale my work and upscale my 
climate outreach and my my you know public outreach education on this issue. So that's when I had this idea in my head. It was in DC, and I called Athena on her cell phone, and I said, "Hey, what do you think about taking next year off and just going around the country doing climate outreach, meeting with people?" from hearing, uh, visiting communities, trying to educate and inform the public on this issue, but also learn what people are going through and experiencing around the country. What do you think about driving to Boston? I mean, she is from Boston. I lived in Boston for six years. It kind of was a natural point to go to across the country. And then we can drop down <clears throat> to Washington, D.C., maybe meet with our politicians and politicians, do some lobbying. <clears throat> and uh, just basically... She was on board. I mean, she said she was in a master's program, just starting a master's program at UC Irvine. Um, and so she wouldn't be able to go until that was concluded. And of course, I was still in contract with UCI, but we were both pretty excited about the, the idea from the outset. And, uh, you know, that's basically how it all came about in our, in our heads. And um, after that, it was, it was only the, you know, the hard work only started, of course, when it started, it was time to put that vision to practice. And that took place probably a year later because we had to wind down all these other things we were doing. Yeah, that's, that is literally so fascinating. Um, I've actually had a similar experience with going to like a conference in DC um, through George Mason University out there. in it's, I think it's in Virginia, but we've, been in DC for the lobbying part. Um, there's this program called Washington Youth Summit on the Environment. And I went in summer of 2017, I believe. Um, and it was an environmental youth com- uh, conference for a week where we had students from all over the country kind of come and learn about like environmental science and initiatives and policy that was going on in the country. So I've also been to a conference that has like completely like changed my mindset. So it's really interesting that you went in feeling like, okay, I'm going to dial back after this is over. And then after the conference and hearing from all these people, you're like, actually, no, I'm going to dial back my work and dial up this advocacy part. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny story. And I, uh, when I give presentations on climate change, oftentimes or many times I've actually read my journal that I wrote that night uh, because I was I was I was so inspired. I decided to write down all my thoughts and feelings, and that for a while was the sort of opening of my presentations around the country. Uh, it wasn't my comfort zone to read that, but I read it to Athena and my mother, and she and they both said, "You've got to read that to your audiences because uh, it's inspiring." And and I, yeah, I think it is kind of a, a funny little story, and I think it resonates with people. I can definitely appreciate sharing a moment of like high vulnerability with like an audience that doesn't know you very well. So that's very, very good. Um, kind of building off of that though, you've mentioned a couple of times now that you've had some kind of, um, you said you had like a mental limitation with like where you were applying for, um, I believe like your graduate program or your something like that. And then also um, like, I'm just wondering, have you ever been intimidated by your aspirations because you said that your work was getting overwhelming and you didn't know if you could do all this climate action? How do you deal with that? What is your mechanism to cope with that or get past it? Uh, So I don't think I've ever 
I'm intimidated by my aspirations in the sense that I feel like my purpose on this planet, if if I have one, is is to do something that's really meaningful and really, uh, you know, really helps to address these really important environmental problems. And that's no easy task. And I've come to definitely see that. I mean, we spent a year on the road practically visiting communities around the country. And I put, I couldn't have put any more time into that project, but climate change isn't solved, right? I mean, uh, you don't see my face uh, on the cover of the New York Times front page leading this massive movement that's changing the world, right? But that was all the time I could put in. I mean, I really worked hard on that project. So I think that coming to the realization that these problems take long drawn out years of continuous work to even make a a small impact you know that's not you know and and it's only by probably hard work but also happenstance and being in the right places at the right time meeting the right people that you can actually um, be propelled into a place of having even more transformative impact you know and um, those opportunities and those those moments of connection, maybe it's through networking that will help you propel you to become a more effective leader, probably only happen if you are persistently working at a problem and trying to, um, you're passionately driven and you're working at something for years. They certainly don't come overnight. And as effective as I think our project was around the country, um, you know, there's, there's no question that there's just so much more work to do and that we were only really scratching the surface. So the you know intimidating aspects for me are just i think coming to terms with how much work it's going to take to achieve the level of sort of action and impact that i want to have in the world it's it's not going to it's not going to come overnight and it's not going to come um it's not going to come with a 30 year retirement it's going to be a life's work and it's going to be tiring and i think that uh, you know, I, I get paid probably for a, a fraction of the work I actually do. You know, most of the work I do and is actually just outreach, trying to get reach people through Instagram, my website, uh, writing, writing articles for The Hill and other newspapers, writing books, creating videos. A lot of what we did around the country, we interviewed scientists, uh, experts, also people afflicted by climate impacts. So I've got hours and hours of video footage on my laptop that I'm still trying to bring to my website, but it requires a lot of video editing. And it's uh, really just, there's a lot of work that comes with outreach and education. And um, more often than not, you'll probably find that it's hard to align that with your paid employment. So it's basically forces you to work overtime all the time. (laughs) If you want to have an impact. That's a lot to take in. Um, I really like how you said it's going to be a life's work and it's going to be hard. Um, That's real. (laughs) That's all I really have to say. Like that's real. Um, But it's inspiring too, that you are putting time into a project that isn't making national headlines, like you said, but is making waves in the people that you do directly um, interact with and hear their stories and things like that. Um, I know you have videos on YouTube, I believe, of like certain um, interviews that you've had. Um, Do you want to share like a brief synopsis of like one of the most memorable interviews that you've had with somebody? 
on that project? Sure, I'd be happy to. There are a couple of videos that stand out. One video, I was interviewing a farmer. We were in, let's see, we were in Minnesota. This was Jim Riddle at Blue Fruits Farm. And he was explaining, I was asking him about any weather patterns, changes in weather that he had been observing over his time as a farmer. And he was saying unequivocally, there's been differences in, in weather patterns uh, over the last, I think it was decade or so. And he was explaining that the precipitation has just changed dramatically over his farming career. Used to be consistent, sporadic rain showers, just conducive, very conducive to growing crops. Uh, but that's no longer the case. They are seeing more, not necessarily an increase in average rainfall, um, an annual rainfall, but more sporadic rain events where they'll have a lot of rain and then might go no rain for a week or two weeks or more. And during those concentrated rain events, and there's actually a lot of uh, YouTube videos and news headlines about what's happening across the Midwest in terms of rain, heavy downpours. But he described a rain event where they got 20, uh, let's see, 17 inches of rain in a 24-hour period. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine over a foot of rain in just, just a day. And I asked him what that was like, and he explained it was hillsides collapsing and trees flowing down the, the roads because this was a hilly farm area. So you had a lot of um, sort of accelerated water rushing down the hills and it wiped out some of the farms. They had, you know, massive soil erosion. And I think that these are the types of stories we don't often hear about and encounter. And these are the people who are supporting us. Um, you know, this is a breadbasket of America. And I think those stories are just so important to bring to the public. So I'm doing, trying to do my part to, to bring that, that sort of piece of the climate change saga to the public. And that's also why in this uh, next book I, I'm writing, it's focusing on trying to, you know, I've done the YouTube and I'm continuing to bring videos online, but in a book form, I'm trying to bring some of these stories to the American public and sort of tie in the climate change story and bring it away from the territory of just parts per million and graphs and pie charts, but actually bring in the human element. And, and that's a really important piece of this next book, which is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. I'm used to science writing, but now I'm having to try to write an engaging story that tells the story of climate change as it's unfolding throughout the country with um, that human I, element. Through all of my um, major related classes that I've taken so far, the number one thing that I've taken away at this point in time is that there is such a need to be able to communicate with people in this world and not just like people that are in the science and understands science, but just general communication with the public. Um, and also, like you said, um, taking it away from graphs and figures and pie charts, but also bringing a human element because I have also discovered through just like my time as an undergrad that a lot of science is very impersonal. It's very data-driven. It's very just here's the fact, but it doesn't tell the story of the people that are being affected by climate change and pollution and things like that. So that's like an integral part of science that I feel like a lot of people are missing or that I don't see as much um, talked about. And I just like, what do you think the best way to kind of bridge that? Do you think it's um, outreach like on social media like you do now? Like what is your favorite way to engage with the public based on, I mean, besides like, um, regular like presentations or whatever via social media? So a hundred percent, I agree with what you said. And I think that it's so incredibly important for scientists to 
be the ones communicating about their science and not just studying the science. I think that's a different role for a scientist. That's not the historic role of a scientist. Um, we have you know media for that, but we've seen, and it's been so clear with COVID-19 and, and climate change. And there's other issues that uh, you see a huge disconnect between what scientists are saying and what the public's understanding. And that's where you, we need not just you know news reporters that are talking to the public, but actually the scientists themselves who are actually studying these topics and know it better than anyone else. Um, I think that in terms of how to go about doing that, for one thing, I try to empower scientists to do that. When I give talks at colleges, I you know I never was encouraged through any professors I had to be a spokesperson on issues of the environment, uh, but I try to be that for students at the college level. And I think that the best ways to try to reach people, you mentioned social media. <clears throat> I, can't, I can't overstate the importance of using social media in that regard. And that's why I've really focused my Instagram on that, really trying to get people engaged on issues of sustainability and the environment. And also through you know, presenting, giving presentations, I think that's important. Uh, everybody has different comfort levels with public speaking, but if you or any of your viewers are comfortable public speaking, there's a variety of different groups that would love to hear from you, especially people in the environmental science field. Even at the undergraduate level, you're an expert compared to many, and you can give talks to your church groups or uh, maybe you have a club on campus. Uh, I think that there's a lot of opportunity for speaking to the community. Believe it or not, I, I've even gone door to door as recently as a couple of years ago when we were doing our Road for Climate Outreach project, uh, Road for Climate Action project. I was trying to understand sentiment on the issue of climate change, this public sentiment. So I created a 24 question survey and I was going door to door in certain areas uh, to try to ask people to take this two minute survey so I can hear from them. And now I think I've got about a thousand different surveys. Those are not all door to door. A lot of these were, were not door to door, but a, a hundred or so were door to door. And even that kind of thing, passing out flyers. I mean, there's just so much room for that, but I want to get back to social media really quickly because we're in a unique time where we all are able to be news reporters. You know, if you went back 10 or 20 years, you had to work for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal to have a voice as a media correspondent to have a platform where you can actually share the news. It's no longer the case today. It's really a different world. And we all have these platforms called you know, Facebook and Instagram where we might have a thousand or a few hundred or even more followers. And we have the opportunity to share information, share headlines, that headline of the Arctic melting in the dead of winter. These are the types of things in addition to photos of your family and our pets and things like that, these are also the types of things people need to see in their newsfeed on social media. And I think we all have a role to play in that. And it's also, fortunately, really easy to do. You know, we don't have to be invest investigatory, uh, investigative researchers or reporters. We can actually uh, just draw that headline from the EPA website or the NASA website and just share it on our social media page. And I think it's just really important to bring that climate change or environmental information to people's new news feeds and also serve as a role model to say that hey it's not awkward to talk about issues that are important yeah 100 percent um i really love 
the whole you're an expert compared to many comment that you made. Um, that resonates very deeply with me because I find sometimes that I kind of like doubt my ability to um, do science communication because I'm like, I'm not the one that's actually doing it. And there's always room for, you know, misinterpretation. That's just like a human thing. But I think that there's also value in trying and trying your best to be as accurate as possible. But you know, still doing something. Um, that's something that's very important to me. And that's kind of why I started this podcast and trying to get my like thing going here. Um, yeah, that really resonates with me. I also, um, you mentioned going, um, like at the undergraduate level, um, talking to college students and you said, if you have any clubs that do that, I just have to shout out my (laughs) Oregon state environmental science club. Um, we actually do do this. We have what we call, um, global issue discussions, GIDs for short, um, during club and any club member can come give a presentation on any topic that they want related to the environment and kind of just like educate us on what's going on. So some people do presentations on like endangered species, other people. We had a really good talk um, this time last year about um, climate policy in Oregon. So it's just really cool to see like multiple student organizations and stuff come together and do these kind of things. That's that's terrific. It's excellent. That's exactly the kind of thing that we uh, need to be seeing more of around the country. So kudos for that. And I'm glad you gave a shout out to the to the club. Yeah. So if anybody from Environmental Science Club is listening, thank you guys. I'll mention quickly too that uh, kind of following up on some of what we were just talking about is that, um, you know, you were saying the comment about being an expert to many. As scientists Mm -hmm. and people in science, we're trained to be very, you know, on top of the facts and not state things that are not accurate and not supported by data and information. And that's all extremely, an extremely important part of being a scientist is being that credible, accurate source of information the best that you can. Uh, with that being said, it also makes, I think, scientists shy away from wanting to talk about these issues because we can't be perfectly accurate, um, you know, the sources of information when we're speaking off the cuff, talking to people, media reporters, this and that. But I think it's under it's it's okay to, and also I should say, speaking the language of the public sometimes is not the same as as the scientific language. And I think that um, there's also a reluctance to want to use the I call the language of the public uh, as scientists because you know it might be you know it's it, it's it's a, a less technical language that inherently comes off as less accurate. But I think that if you want to talk and you want to have, you know, if you want to talk with the public, if you want to um, write articles and blogs, you have to learn to be okay with, with, you know, getting a little bit away from the very technical language that is accurate, but also extremely dry and nobody's going to understand and nobody's going to want to hear. So there has to be a little bit, I think, of an acceptance um, to to uh, have a little bit of a different approach when we're talking with uh, media reporters and the public. And, and I think that's okay. And, and now stating where science is not certain or less certain is always something uh, you can do. Or if you're not 100% aware of a fact or a statistic, you can always just say that, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, we're sort of afraid to not know something, but it's okay to not know something and just say, hey, I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure if this is totally accurate, but this is to the best of my recollection or what happened. Yeah, it's honestly a breath of fresh air to hear somebody say that. So I really appreciate that. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I guess just in general, your opinion on this, would you say that science is kind of evolving in the way that it's being communicated? Do you think that there's more of an acceptance among people that hold these degrees and are in these professions to say, like, we need to use more of a common medium between like everyday people that don't know this technical science jargon? What are your opinions on that? No, I think that there is a movement to among scientists, some scientists to try and empower other scientists and um, and scientists who are recognizing the need for scientists to be science communicators as opposed to just scientists. And I've read some some articles on that. And I think that, you know, I can't speak for the whole nation as a whole or, you know, give too much of the historical evolution of that. But I certainly think that I... I see in just my own surroundings and especially the climate we're in, the political climate. And, um, you know, I, I definitely had seen the impacts of lacking scientific spokesmen. You know, I think that we're being too guided by people who aren't scientists on issues of science, whether it's climate change or COVID-19. And, you know, we need scientific spokespeople. Otherwise, we can get political spokespeople on these issues. And we know, everyone knows that those aren't necessarily always the most uh, accurate sources on issues of science, uh, you know, and right now we're having a public health crisis and it's important to have those public health practitioners in the front lines. Um, So I think that there is a, a growing push to have scientists be uh, spokespeople for science, but I'm not sure. I don't think we're anywhere close to where we need to be. And it's going to be an increasing, it's going to be a continuous battle to, um, to sort of evolve from the tradition of just being in the lab and, and being at the computer. Uh, but I think that, you know, through, encouragement by fellow scientists that the younger generation can become empowered to be to be a little bit more of that and now we're also in this blogging age uh people a lot of people have websites so i think there's uh there's more interest in that and we're getting to the point with climate change that it's absolutely critical to have accurate scientific information become communicated and we simply can't rely on uh politicians and and journalists to to be the the lead spokesman on these issues we really need need to have these scientists at the front lines. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. And I hope that we do make progress on this very important issue, especially in this political climate. Anyway. Yeah, and they, I'll mention, um, I mentioned blogging briefly. That's a great way that, you know, college level uh, individuals, undergraduate or graduate, can contribute to the conversation. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, you're an expert to many. I, I was, I started my blog when I had finished my master's degree and I was blogging all throughout my doctoral degree about issues of the environment, issues of health, sustainability. And a lot of people seem to enjoy the blog. On, I share it on Facebook. Uh, I think that there is a lot of interest in that. And I think you're probably even going through going about a better approach, which is a podcast, because increasingly these days, people don't want to read or they have short attention spans. But 
a podcast is something people can plug in or turn on in their car. And I think it's really convenient whenever we start driving again after the COVID-19. Right. Whenever we're allowed to leave our houses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, that's awesome. Um, one question that I have, because I feel like it's come up a couple times here and there, um, is that there is definitely a sense that like science is in it for the long run, obviously, you know, needless to say. Um, and you've also mentioned that, you know, with your on the road to climate action um, projects, that was a project that you put your heart and soul into, but, you know, it doesn't receive like international recognition. And I'm just wondering, like, what is your advice for people that are just like going into scientific fields and are putting their like hearts and souls in the things that are in it for the long run, but don't receive that kind of recognition? Like what is your drive to keep doing what you're doing? Are you talking about on the science side or on the outreach side? Um, on the outreach side. So when I started blogging, I had 11 followers uh, and then I grew to, you know, 30 or 40 or 50. And that was mostly my family. Not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> over time, I mean, it took, that was 2011 that I started blogging. And now here we are nine years later. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't have a million followers or anything, but that's just a testament to, you know, I think people are now, I get a lot of Instagram messages. Uh, hey, can you give me a shout out? I think it's 13,000 followers as of this week on my Instagram, which is really exciting, but um, it's not, it's not a, you know, I think people see those, those numbers and it's exciting if, if you're, you know, have just a few hundred followers and you're trying to get uh, a message out about an important topic. And I remember when I just had a, a few hundred Instagram followers and I was reaching out to people with many more followers and I was envious and thinking, um, you know, gosh, it would be just, you know, great to have more followers and have a bigger platform and be able to reach more people. But that comes, you know, it comes through persistence and work and outreach and communicating and just keeping doing what you're doing. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm still just a peon in the Instagram world where people have millions of followers, but you know, it's, it's, uh, having a, a 10, 12, 13,000 followers is, is a, substantial enough audience to make, you know, posting and sharing things pretty exciting, knowing that you can reach that many people with the click of a button. But uh, 2018, just prior to my climate outreach project, that number was sitting at around, you know, 500. So just a couple of years, things can change. But again, it takes a lot of, um, it takes persistence and work. And I think just an adjustment of our expectation is that it's not, likely to happen overnight that you have this <clears throat> huge, um, huge national interest or, you know, local interest. It really does take gradual work. So I think just kind of coming to terms with uh, a little bit of that. However, uh, shooting for the stars, uh, there's a, there's a, actually the phrase, I think the famous quote is shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll be among the stars. So it's, important, I think, to have your goals set high and really go for it, you know, and, and try to reach as many people as you can, try to become as knowledgeable as you can about these topics. One of the things that keeps me, I think, going is I never feel like I'm doing enough. I, I uh, you asked my fiance, it's, it's probably not my best characteristic, <laughs> but I, I, I never feel like I'm, um, reading enough. I never feel like I'm publishing enough. I never, and, and it's not uh, something that 
it's not a negative thing. It's, it's something that keeps me just driven. And I'm always feeling like there's just more to do. Having said that, you've got to balance your your work with your play and your enjoyment of life. And of course, that's an important aspect. But, um, you know, the work's, the work's never going to be done. And uh, just have a, a sober outlook on that, that if you want to do outreach and environmental awareness, um, there's just going to be an infinite amount of work. Find the balance that works for you in your life. Keep your expectations um, in check, but keep your goals really high. And I think that's a, a good approach to kind of being successful. And over time, you'll, you'll, you'll get closer to where you ultimately want to be. Wow. Yep. That's pretty much it. <laughs> An infinite amount of work, but stay driven, stay realistic, but stay driven and keep striving. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in closing here, since we're running up on time, um, I'm just wondering if there's any current projects or initiatives that you want to share. Like you said, you're writing your second book. If you wanted to talk about that, if you also want to talk about your first book, because I haven't asked you yet, just anything like that, share what you're up to right now and where people can connect with you if they want to learn more. Sure. I'll mention, um, I'll mention my first book because I'm still really trying to, you know, that's the book that's written. It's out there. I'm really trying to get it out in the hands of the public. It's called Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change. And it was published in 2018, right before the kickoff of my national outreach project. I think it's a really important book that is unlike most climate books you'll find because basically what it is, is it's 50 short chapters that debunk the common misconceptions that often surround the topic of climate change from, you know, whether electric cars are useful or whether they're truly green, um, whether climate change is due to natural cycles or solar cycles. Can we actually measure CO2 in the air? Do we know um, what past temperatures were like? All kinds of different misconceptions. I've piled them all into uh, one spot where you can dive in. There's over 270 different references. So it's an extremely good resource for people who are already you know, convinced that climate change is important. Uh, well, for those people, it's a great reference resource for them. And for those people who are not sure, unaware, I think there's a lot of information in that book that will uh, help you see the important aspects of, of why this is important. And then lastly, it's, uh, it's a book that I think is, you know, for those of us who view climate change as a really important issue that we need to be talking more about, because after all, we don't solve problems that we don't talk about. It's important to be, and this gets back to our conversation about being a spokesman for science, it's important to be accurate and understand where the misconceptions are off and where the science is. And I think that even for a scientist, it's hard to be on top of all these different misconceptions. It's hard to know exactly how to respond when a skeptical person says, oh, well, you know, I heard that, you know, Greenland is, uh, you know, Greenland used to be green or, uh, you know, so aren't we actually turning into a colder planet? It used to be green, you know, these kinds of things. And it's hard to respond to, to know how to respond to all of these types of comments. So I think the book pulling all of this into one place, providing a scientific basis, but not an overly technical basis uh, to answering these questions and allowing climate communicators to be, I think, to converse uh, at an elevated level, I think is really important. So that was the whole idea behind the book. 
um, translating science for the everyday person and pull, pulling all that information into one place. And it's written like a field guide, so you don't have to read it from cover to cover. You can kind of pick any topic and flip through it in, in any order. So, uh, yeah, that book's available on my website. If you go to shihirmastery.com or on the road, actually, sorry, roadforclimateaction.com or shihirmastery.com, those will both take you to my website. And uh, that's also where you can tune into my YouTube, my Instagram, my Facebook, uh, my social media, all is on my Instagram. And I also have a monthly newsletter that you can subscribe to through my my website, which I think is a great place to kind of stay in tune with what's going on with the climate, climate outreach, uh, education. I even do COVID-19 update videos I've been doing lately. Uh, so I don't overly burden people. I just send that out once a month. So if uh, there's any people in your club or your school or any of your listeners who want to join, uh, yeah, just go to my website and you can tune into all of this information. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. I feel like it's been a good mix of the reality of science, but also the hopes for science and things like that. It's been really, really impactful to hear your expertise in these areas. And yeah, thank you for coming. Well, my pleasure, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me and keep up all the great work.